Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three in our series on throwing behavior in animals, especially non-human animals, but we'll be talking about uh, throwing of the human variety some today. Now, in previous episodes, we discussed a paper documenting a, a kind of throwing or what appeared to be a kind of throwing in octopuses in Australia, which uh, use their siphons to blast clouds of silt in their neighbors' faces when they get a little too close. Uh, we discussed the ability of elephants to throw with their trunks, and we talked about mongooses doing brutal reverse granny shots to <laughs> bypass the defenses of armored millipedes and, as Mick Jagger would say, get the meat. Uh, today, our discussion continues with a very important consideration. Well, when I told my wife that uh, this was the topic we were going to be covering, uh, the question she asked was, well, what about Airbud? Are you going to talk <laughs> about Airbud and uh, handle the Airbud question? A very important facet of this issue, yes. Airbud is, of course, a 1997 motion picture about a dog that plays competitive basketball based on the, uh, at this point, I think, classic sports movie trope. There's nothing in the rule book that says a blank can't play whatever the sport happens to be. And you can put into that blank uh, basically any animal, whatever animal seems doable from a um, movie-making standpoint and acceptable to the human imagination. And I guess you could ultimately go beyond the realm of, of humans into other things as long as you could somehow cobble together a, a script around it. Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen another one of these. I think I saw Airbud when I was a kid, but uh, I know it's a tradition, right? There, you know, there's a million movies. Like Jeremy, the football horse. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I think one of the earliest, if not the earliest examples of this, and I could be wrong because this is not a subgenre that, that I have personally explored a lot, but I do remember seeing parts of this one on TV. The 1976 movie Gus, which also had Ed Asner and Don Knotts in it, to give you an idea of the, mm. the, you know, the, the, the caliber of talent that was, that was involved in this. But it was about a, a terrible NFL team. I think there's something like the California Atomics or something. And... <laughs> they end up deciding to field a donkey as a, a kicker in the game. And uh, um, I guess it works out for them. Again, there's, a, I'm, there's nothing in the rule book that says a donkey can't play NFL. Yeah, I, I imagine movies like this must just encourage an, uh, an overly stringent form of legalism when it comes to professional sports. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, does it say games must take place on planet Earth and so forth? Yeah, yeah, they will. The, at this point, surely they've future proof things. But if we're going just 
based on these films, it would seem that for a while they didn't have all the loopholes filled in on this. And uh, and people were just constantly rolling out new animals. Like, it doesn't say anything about uh, about aardvarks, so aardvarks <laughs> are in play uh-huh. in professional curling. Yes. Okay, but outside of Gus and Airbud, you also have movies like 2000's MVP, Most Valuable Primate, in which a chimpanzee plays soccer. There are also, but, I think, but, 13 additional <laughs> Airbud sequels and spinoffs. I was gonna, humans are also primates. All existing soccer players are primates. Well, <laughs> tell the producers of, of MVP, Most Valuable Primate, about that. Um, maybe, they, maybe they actually touch on it in the screenplay, but I doubt it. But I'm I'm sorry, you were say, how many Airbud movies are there? Thirteen by my oh. count. That includes the Air Buddies, uh, like spinoff series. Yeah, and interestingly enough, 2006's Air Buddies that was Don Knotts' final film. He voiced a bloodhound in it. Oh, now I don't know. Does that uh, that means animals talk in Air Buddies? I don't know if animals talked in Air Bud. Perhaps. You remember? Uh, I don't remember. I'm inclined to think not. I think the dog in Airbud uh, was silent. But yeah, well, by by the time they get into the buddies movies, which by the way descend into titles like Space Buddies and Santa (laughs) Buddies, as far as I can tell, these are just an excuse to have a screen full of golden retriever puppies for 80 minutes. I I think it is (laughs) uh, absolutely uh, crass mercenary filmmaking. It's just. ultimate cute exploitation. Um, but this was also the series that uh, in a episode long ago, we suggested should do a crossover with the Clive Barker verse and create hell buddies. <laughs> now there's also just real quick, a few other mentions. There's 1999 soccer dog, the movie there's 2005's the karate dog. Uh, and then there's the 1996 movie Ed in which a chimpanzee plays baseball Oh, and then there's 1978's Matilda about a boxing kangaroo. That one, uh, that one has interested me because I noticed it stars Elliot Gould, mm. and it was also one of the films you could pull up on the Criterion Collections uh, streaming service at least uh, several months back. A boxing kangaroo—is that a waltzing Matilda joke? Um, I imagine so. Mm. Yeah, and it's—it's. It's, I looked a little bit into this related to this podcast episode and i quickly realized oh well the boxing kangaroo is a whole thing unto itself um that does have some basis in kangaroo behavior but often in like a misinterpretation of kangaroo defensive behavior uh but it has kind of like a life of its own outside of this particular picture Mm. might be something to come back to in the future now one more thing about the airbud franchise you know before they get to air buddies i think you were saying that the the golden retrievers end up doing a bunch of different sports and they've all got puns in the titles so the one where airbud does baseball is called airbud seventh inning fetch <laughs> well, you got to get some puns in there all right but but bringing it all back around to today's episode okay some of these we can just instantly dismiss for now we don't need to concern ourselves with boxing kangaroos or karate dogs because these do not involve throwing you know we're going to focus on the sports that involve throwing a ball um gus that's impressive but he's a kicker uh despite just participating in a game that has a lot of throwing in it doesn't seem to be throwing anything so we really only have to worry about the concept of dogs playing scoring games with balls and chimpanzees playing scoring games with balls real quick let's talk about dogs Mm -hmm. um and and you may have additional uh expertise on this uh, to, to throw in here, um, uh, experience uh, from being a dog owner. But as far as dogs go, they can obviously be trained to do a lot of different things, often very impressive things, including chasing after, catching, and fetching balls and sticks. And as is evident in many videos online, they can also be trained to bounce basketballs into baskets off of their their noses, off of their snouts. Oof, that always, I don't know, like a basketball is a fairly massive object. I would think booping a basketball in mid-flight <laughs> with the snout would really kind of hurt. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. But I looked around, and as far as dogs throwing, I'm not so certain about this. Drops, yes. they can. You'll see plenty of examples of dogs catching things, dropping them. Um, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure you really have anything like throwing, even kind of a you know, a tossing aside of a stick or a ball. Uh, Well, not targeted throwing. I mean, I think what's quite common for dogs is something more like what the mongoose did with the Mm. millipede. Uh, Dogs will 
especially uh, dogs that have been trained in kind of unusual environments with, say, a uh, a puzzle type treat retrieval toy. You know, so you have like uh, some kind of toy where the treat is hidden inside and the dog has to manipulate the toy to get the treat out of the middle. In those cases, I've seen dogs throwing the toy in order to try to extract the treat, but it's very haphazard. They're not like hitting a target. They're more just kind of like throwing it wildly by tossing their head and it'll bounce off the wall or something and maybe the, the treat will tumble out. Hmm. Now, I also found some some discussions and some papers about the possibility that a dog using a chewing stick is essentially a form of tool use. And this would also apply to any other animal that uses um, a stick in such a fashion. Uh, so that's an interesting idea to consider. Hmm. Yeah, you can make that argument. I guess by the same token, you could say like a bear scratching its butt against a tree would be a form of tool use. Yeah. Chimps, however, uh, chimps are a different case entirely. So we're not saying that chimpanzees should be encouraged to play baseball or soccer or any other professional sport or any sport for that matter. But they have certainly demonstrated their use of tools in both captivity and in the wild. Uh, and this includes the targeted use of thrown objects. Now, one of the objects or, or substances, I guess, observed to be thrown a lot. And, and this is something that is, of course, well documented online. In fact, when we were researching other aspects of animals throwing things, some of the search engines I, were, I was using were very excited to give me content of animals throwing feces, <laughs> particularly uh, chimps throwing feces. Uh, I was not looking for this information at the time, but the Internet really wanted to serve it to me. Uh huh. Now, this kind of goes back into something we talked about earlier, though, the question, if you're doing something with something that came from your own body, is it truly tool use? I don't know. I mean, I, I guess when I was thinking about substances that come out of an animal's own body, I was thinking about like uh, things like spider silk or like uh, the the uh, urticating hairs that come off of a tarantula's back, where the ways in which these substances are used are not very generalized. They're not very free form. Instead, they seem to be pretty tightly controlled, uh, instinctually determined behavioral uh, patterns. Whereas, I don't know, you could say maybe like a chimpanzee pooping and then throwing its poop at someone or something. That, that seems to be a little more freeform. Yeah, I guess also, and this is not something that any of the papers I looked at got into, but I guess there there's a difference between poop directly delivered to the hand and then thrown mm -hmm. and like poop that is just like say in a creature's habitat or in its general area that it then picks up uh maybe not even its own poop um so uh, i guess we'd have to consider that as well now i do think we should be clear that feces are not the only objects that that apes like chimpanzees throw but it is a mm -hmm. feces are often observed to be thrown especially in captivity i think Yes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, the sources I was looking at were definitely mentioning this because in captivity, uh, especially historically, there are often less things for the animal to interact with. Mm -hmm. The poop is something that will happen eventually, will be in the enclosure and therefore is available to pick up, manipulate and throw if desired. Whereas in the wild, there are other competitors uh, out there, the other things they could pick up, like sticks, like rocks that could be thrown. And we have seen them throw such objects, both in captivity, but also in the wild. And so it seems to, to be a situation where there, uh, there are far more incidents of poop throwing in captivity versus the wild, though they have been observed to throw poop in the wild as well. So, yeah, I guess I would not disqualify something uh, from counting as tool use just because it consists of uh, an animal's own excreta or something that came out of their body. I mean, you could use poop, I suppose, as a tool for all kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is kind of a, a tangent, but um, I was l looking around and back in 2017, a team from the University of Calgary hosted a competition to make use of astronaut waste. And the winning submission was titled Astroplastic from Colon to Colony, <laughs> in which the DNA of an E. coli bacteria was modified so that it removed acids from human feces. And but they did not use actual poop in the experiment. They used a, like a mixture of things to to simulate poop. Uh -huh. But the idea was here that this uh, this this modified E. coli would produce a plastic that can then be used in a 3D printer to produce simple tools like wrenches and screwdrivers. So the aim here would be sort of twofold. So say you're 
going to Mars on an extended mission. Mm-hmm. This way, you don't have to bring those tools with you. You don't have to pay for the, um, the the cost of getting those tools into orbit and then to Mars. And then likewise, you have to worry less about getting rid of human waste on the journey. Uh, that That's quite brilliant. Yes, I, I one day hope to have all kinds of plastic tools and toys made out of poop. <laughs> Now, um, this is this is sort of another aside, but this gets back to chimps specifically. Uh, you might get into the question of why do chimps throw poop um, specifically, even if they have a, a choice of their objects to throw. And I found this uh, rather fascinating older paper. This is from 1996. It is um, uh, a Russian paper titled um, A Neglected Form of Quasi-Aggression in Apes, Possible Relevance for the Origins of Humor. This was hmm. from Current Anthropology. And I'm just going to read a quote from it here. According to people working at the Pavlov Center, at least four adult chimpanzee males and one adult female would also throw feces at people, expressing joy when the target was hit by making a play face, hooting, clapping, and stamping around. They did not, however, throw feces at persons of whom they were afraid. We have received the same information from people in charge of chimpanzees at the St. Petersburg and Moscow zoos. At the Moscow zoo, the same behavior was observed in orangutans. Hmm. So at least in these cases, the uh, the chimpanzees seem to get a real hoot out of hitting somebody with some poop. Yeah. And, and again, this is older research, and I detect at least a little bit of anthropomorphizing here, but the distinction about fear was very interesting. So may, maybe in this we do see the roots of something like humor. But uh, elsewhere, primatologists do seem to agree that throwing poop, stones, sticks, etc. in primates is is often a an act of communication, which matches up with some of the things we've been discussing uh, elsewhere in this series. Yeah, and that we will get to uh, in a little bit when we talk about human evolution. Yeah. And with chimps, it's not even, uh, it's it's not even a case of like, of necessarily purely spontaneous communication. Like, it's easy, to, I think, to make that leap. You think of, like, an animal trying to say something, not having the ability to say it or having difficulty relaying that message, and then sort of sort of spontaneously picking something up and throwing it. Or perhaps it already has something in its hand and it throws it. And this would still be very fascinating. I mean, even you think of, like, a zoo environment, for example. Mm-hmm. The chimp is attempting interspecies communication, uh, even if that interspecies communication consists of throwing a rock or some poop at somebody. Right. But it's not always spontaneous. Sometimes it is premeditated. Uh, in the case of, um, of stone throwing that's been observed, one of the, the, the more famous examples of this was uh, Santino, the chimpanzee, born in 1978, who made headlines uh, multiple times. And I think sometimes the, the news cycle would come back around uh, to him. Because in addition to being a, a pretty talented artist, he also had some issues with people, uh, mm. liked to collect stones ahead of time so that he could throw them at uh, visitors to the uh, F- Fruvik Zoo in Sweden. Now, that's really interesting, the, the collecting of stones in advance aspect, because, of course, that indicates some kind of forethought or premeditation or planning, like seeing the stone as a tool for future use in a moment when it is not currently uh, needed for that use. Yeah, and it apparently wasn't an isolated incident. Uh, it said that he planned hundreds of stone-throwing attacks on zoo visitors over the years. Um, sadly, he escaped from his enclosure in December of 2022 and was subsequently shot along with some other escapees, which was a pretty oh. controversial uh, incident uh, recently. There was a fair amount of coverage about that. Uh, but not I don't think everybody necessarily connected that this was the same chimp that had made uh, headlines in the past for the throwing of rocks. And for art, apparently. And for art, yeah. You can find videos of him online doing some uh, some painting, you know, manipulating of pigments on the uh, on on a, on a canvas to create some interesting works. Oh, well, sad in for Santino, but uh, led an interesting life. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting. uh, It was already kicking in before I left the house. 
Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Now, there's another interesting wrinkle in stone throwing with chimps that I was reading about. uh, Because in the wild, chimps will also engage in what is called accumulative stone throwing. As reported by Cool et al. in Nature Scientific Reports back in 2016, modern chimpanzees will will actually create stone accumulation sites that are reminiscent of human cairns, of of human um, assemblages of stone, something that we often associate with like deliberate cultured acts of, of human behavior, uh, something, and this is both from, uh, from an archaeological standpoint, when archaeologists find examples of stones that have been gathered together in one area, and also, I think we just individually encounter this as well, whether you see piles of stones that are put there for a purpose, like perhaps you're on a nature walk and these stones are, are gathered together to help mark the path you're supposed to be on, mm-hmm. or you often see this done out of, uh, for, for pure amusement um, uh, at times. You'll just find places where humans have been around multiple stones and there's like kind of this irresistible urge to arrange them or stack them up. Yeah. And so it's interesting, but I also am hesitant to make the speculative leap here. I mean, I, I know I was reading about this paper and I know what some people have said about the, you know, the accumulation of stones, like throwing stones into the into a hollow tree or something until they really mm-hmm. pile up. That suggests, well, maybe they're creating some kind of like ritual monument, like, you know, like humans would create a Karen for some kind of purpose to be observed and to mean something. I I don't think there's really evidence present to jump to that kind of conclusion because that seems like a, a different order of 
uh, that symbolic behavior that, uh, as far as I know, is probably only the province of, of humans. But I, I guess we could always be surprised. It seems kind of a speculative leap to me, but it's still really interesting behavior nonetheless. I mean, the 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 chimpanzee is piling up the stones for some interesting reason, uh, even if it's not to like create a symbolic marker for other chimpanzees to see. Yeah, yeah. So this particular paper, uh, they were drawing on various surveys and accounts, and they found four populations in West Africa where chimps, quote, habitually bang and throw rocks against trees or toss them into tree cavities, resulting in conspicuous stone accumulations at these sites. Uh, they point out that chimps, along with capuchin monkeys and long-tailed macaques, are known to use stones as hammers to crack open encased foods. Uh, they point out that stone throwing in chimpanzees was first described by Jane Goodall, who documented aimed throwing of sticks and rocks by male chimpanzees during agonistic displays. And this behavior was later described by researchers for other non-human primates as well, including Japanese macaques, wild baboons, and capuchin monkeys. Yeah. Female bearded capuchins have also been observed to throw rocks during courtship interactions, um, which I, I guess this is, would be like tenderly throwing pebbles against a window. Uh, to get their lover's interest at night uh, without awakening uh, the parents downstairs, uh, or maybe not. I like it, but human metaphors aside, I mean, like, it, it, it is interesting that they would throw rocks at each other for apparent purposes other than threats or intimidation. Yeah, again, coming back into, like, the communication aspect of it. Um, now, I mentioned the, the using, using some sort of nut-cracking um, uh, behavior with rocks. That can sometimes lead to those rocks accumulating in certain places, mm -hmm. uh, which is a different type of accumulation versus what we're talking with the chimps here. Um, also, the paper points out that Japanese macaques engage in stone handling, which isn't tool use, but solitary object play behavior. And it actually results in use wear patterns on the stones, and the stones will then end up accumulating at quote-unquote playstations. So just sort of like handling, manipulating a stone, not really doing anything in particular with it? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Which is, I get, you know, it's like the monolith hasn't really kicked in yet. Um, yeah. But, but, they're, but they're handling the stone. But chimpanzees are well beyond all of these. Like chimpanzees are second only to humans in the variance of their tool usage. Uh, they make use of simple sticks, stone hammers, stone cleavers to like to, to cut foods. Uh, they've even been observed uh, to hunt sleeping bush babies with wooden spears. So this has, I think, only been observed in female chimpanzees. Uh, but they'll take uh, take a stick and sort of sort of sharpen it with their their teeth or chew on it, you know, to get a, a something like a point, and then use that stick to stab into the hollows of trees where there's a sleeping bush baby and spear it and pull it back out to eat. There's so many surprising little little cases of, of tool use or proto-tool use behavior in, in chimpanzees like this. Now, this, this paper uh, basically comes down to, to uh, two hypotheses about why the chimps do this. Uh, the, the first, and I think the main hypothesis, is that they accumulate stone-throwing behavior as a modification of male chimpanzee display. This would make it mean that it would be kind of like a, an addition to their hand and, and foot drumming, uh, and, which is a you know, ritualized behavior found in all known chimpanzee populations. And the use of the stones, throwing the stones um, into a pile, into the hollow of a tree, etc., would be a way of enhancing uh, this particular activity. Mm, that's in Oh, yeah. So like hitting a pile of stones with a stone would probably make a louder sound than just throwing a stone off into the dirt. Yeah, I, I don't think I don't I would not feel comfortable going as far to say that they're making music, uh, though. I think I saw some headlines that that were going in that direction. Mm hmm. Uh, they, they also say that the, the second area to consider, they say that it could also not be male drumming, but if it's not that, it would mean that it, quote, may need to be considered in a more symbolic context. And, and I think this is where things would get a little foggier, a little potentially more nebulous, because you're getting into this um, area where there is a connection between, quote, ritualized animal behavior and the repeated stereotype behaviors commonly observed during human rituals, unquote, which, granted, that could cover a great deal of ground. This is what I was alluding to earlier. It, it, I mean, it seems like an interesting possibility, but I think I'd need more evidence that that's really the right way to think about it. Yeah, and I think I think that's basically what the authors here were were leaning towards. Like, it's like if it's not 
just part of the hand and foot drumming of the male chimps, then it's something else. And that something else will require more research and more observation. Yeah. But a really interesting behavior either way. Yeah. And one thing they point out is that it, it, it could have uh, some great importance, not only for our understanding of how chimps behave, but also archaeologically when we find piles of stones and things that, again, uh, we can often easily associate with, uh, with human indention. It could be something else. It could be chimps in, in a, uh, or, or you know, some other um, human ancestor engaging in some sort of display that involves accumulating thrown rocks. Yeah, well, it forces us to be humble about interpreting archaeological evidence because I think mm-hmm. we, we, we tend to always want to say, oh, if we find a, a non-natural assemblage of stones or something like that, you assume it must have an almost kind of like industrial uh, purpose. You know, it's used for direct survival benefit, maybe in the manufacture of, of tools or something like that. Uh, which, which of course, could be possible. Or the other side is people tend to jump to religion, you say, is ritual use. But mm-hmm. then there are these cases that we observe in non-human primates today where it's like it's not even clear what this is for. Yeah. But I wanted to now address the uh, topic of the evolution of throwing in humans because – To the extent that animals throw, and we know from uh, everything we've looked at in these episodes that many, many non-human animals do throw, they don't throw like we do. No animal out there comes anywhere close to the combined levels of force and target precision that humans are capable of. And uh, to further explore this, I was looking at an interesting paper uh, by Michael P. Lombardo and Robert O. Diener, published in the Quarterly Review of Biology in 2018, called Born to Throw, the Ecological Causes that Shaped the Evolution of Throwing in Humans. Uh, Now, I'm not going to address all the subtopics in this paper, but wanted to, to pull out some highlights that I found really interesting. So the authors begin by identifying two major turning points in the relationship between human anatomy and human behavior that sort of drove the evolution of the modern human body. And they identified the shift to bipedal locomotion, that of course is is well known, but also the development of forceful overhand throwing. And they argue that the former has gotten a lot more attention than the latter, but the latter might be considered equally important, if not more so. There are other animals that throw in various scenarios, as we've documented, uh, but humans are the only primates that can be observed to regularly throw targeted projectiles in order to kill or cause injury to another animal. And I think also it's worth noticing not only how much better we are at throwing than other animals, but how this is pretty much the only feat of physical strength or one of the only feats of physical strength where we surpass our closest primate relatives. So compared to other primates like chimpanzees and gorillas, humans are incredibly weak. Uh, The authors cite some research, it's older research from 1926, attempting to quantify the difference between the, you know, like the arm strength of a chimpanzee versus an adult human. And uh, this, this older study concludes that controlling for body size, an adult male chimpanzee is on average roughly four times stronger than a fit adult human male. Now, this is probably a very uh, approximate guess, but I think it is utterly uncontroversial to say that chimps are way, way stronger than humans. A chimpanzee could probably just rip your head off. Oh, yeah. And I, I, I've seen some images of uh, offhand, I can't recall if it was a, a hairless gorilla or a hairless chimpanzee, but it allowed you to really see the muscle definition. And it was it was terrifying how yeah. how ripped this creature was. However, despite being several times stronger than a human on average, in a general sense, their muscles are just stronger, a chimpanzee is several times weaker than even an adolescent human when it comes to forceful overhand throwing. Uh, And I was looking to try to find uh, this comparison quantified. I did find it in the work of a Harvard researcher named Neil Thomas Roach, who studies the evolution of high-speed throwing. Uh, I'm going to come back to some research he was involved in uh, in a minute, but just quickly here, Roach cites figures that even an adult male chimpanzee who has specifically been trained to throw a ball, so this is not just a naive chimpanzee who's never done this before. This is one who, you know, has humans have trained them to throw as hard as they can. 
one who has been trained, can only achieve top throwing speeds of about 20 miles per hour. Whereas among humans, 12 to 13-year-old recreational baseball pitchers can achieve pitches uh, above 60 miles per hour. And professional adult baseball players can throw fastballs in the like 90 to 100 mile per hour range. So isn't that bizarre? A chimpanzee might be simultaneously three or four times stronger than you in general, but you are probably right now at least three times stronger than the chimp when it comes to throwing. Wow. And that's a massive blow to any chimpanzee playing baseball movies out there or basketball movies. Like, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, Chimp Rookie of the Year, that movie, that's based on a false premise. Yeah. But I think this makes more sense the more you, you think about the act of throwing in granular detail. So throwing comes so naturally and so easily to us as a species. It takes real deliberate effort to understand what an extremely difficult and complex behavior forceful targeted throwing is. It requires split-second mental calculations regarding force, angle, and timing, as well as coordination of lots of precise and rapid movements by many different parts of the body. So think about all this stuff. Think about everything your muscles and your brain have to do together to throw a rock and hit something, especially if the thing is moving. You have mm. to track the target, anticipate future motion of the target, Take into account the physical features of the projectile, for example, like its weight and its shape and so forth, which will affect how it travels. You have to understand the object you're throwing to throw it effectively. Um, you have to understand how exactly to draw back and extend the arm for the throw, how to grip the object in preparation for the throw, exactly how and when to release the projectile from the grip. And that's like a, you know, tiny, tiny window. And you have to time all of those muscular movements in exactly the right sequence, which might all take place in less than a second. Uh, throwing behaviors are one of the fastest motions produced by the musculoskeletal system of the human body. Yeah, which, which makes it all the more depressing when you throw a cat toy and the cat doesn't chase after it and doesn't seem depressed. Like, did you not see what I just did? But, but in the case of throwing a cat toy, I, you know, I'm not trying to actually make the toy go anywhere specific. But if I'm, say, bowling, which I guess, I don't know if you would call bowling throwing. I guess it's yeah, sort of think, like throwing. I think it counts. But, but when I'm doing that, that's one of those rare instances where I'll, I'll, I'll occasionally stop and think and try and sort of focus on what all I'm doing to, to carry out this physical act. And, yeah, it's like you say, there's so many things going on that we don't even really have conscious control of or we're not privy to or and if we think too much about it we're just going to drop it on our toe anyway uh it's, it's really quite amazing that's another interesting aspect of uh throwing that i think a lot of people can attest uh, from their own experience when you think too much about throwing you tend to get worse at it isn't that strange yeah, like that is strange you tend to throw more accurately when you kind of turn off your analytical brain and just let your intuitions take over Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month. Taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. 
Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So anyway, the fact that we are so much better adapted for targeted overhand throwing than other primates, uh, even our most closely related primates like chimpanzees, suggests specific selection pressure on our ancestors favoring the development of uh, skeletomuscular as well as neurological adaptations that allow us to excel at throwing to the extent that we do. We seem quite clearly biologically shaped for throwing, and that requires uh, changes in in multiple parts of the body, the muscles and the the skeleton of like the arm and the shoulder and the torso, but also the brain and the nervous system. Now, lest you think, eh, I don't know how useful in real world struggle could throwing be. Uh, I I think this is uncontroversial, but the authors do spend a fair amount of uh, time just providing evidence that. Like, you know, they do observations of pre-modern practices in hunting and warfare to show the prevalence and utility of targeted overhand throwing. They're like, yes, it's incredibly useful. Uh, they say that human, quote, hunters and warriors used human muscle power to propel bolas, boomerangs, darts, knives, sticks, stones, and spears thrown with or without the aid of autolotls. Uh, if you're interested in the autolotl, by the way, we did an episode of Invention on that a long time mm -hmm. ago that I think was was one of my favorites. I remember that being really interesting. Yeah. Anyway, many of the technologies that replaced these practices in hunting and warfare have simply replaced the muscular power with mechanical or chemical sources of energy to power the throw. And that can be everything from the tension of a bowstring to the combustion of gunpowder in, in a firearm. Um, so the question is, how did our hominin ancestors make the leap from something like the occasional low specialization, low utility tossing behaviors we see in our closest primate relatives like chimpanzees to the kind of habitual, powerful, targeted overhand throwing that is characteristic of humans today. Now, like many questions in evolutionary anthropology, we don't know the answer to this one for sure. This is not one where somebody can tell you the answer. But there are a few hypotheses that are informed by some interesting evidence that we can take a look at. Now, before we can figure out how that advance from sort of occasional low-utility throwing to human-style throwing might have occurred, it's worth discussing the major hypothesized uses of overhand throwing in an ancestral hominin environment. Uh, hunting is a very obvious one, right? Being able to throw a rock or a stick with force and hit a prey animal would be extremely useful. But the authors also call out uh, intraspecific and agonistic encounters, which means conflict with other members of the same species. And then finally, I thought this one was really fascinating and uh, 
this one may help explain and, and help you see how this, this bridge could have been crossed uh, behaviorally. The practice of power scavenging, which means uh, not just regular scavenging, not just wandering around looking for a dead animal to, to feast upon. Power scavenging means waiting for other predators to take down a prey animal and then chasing those predators away from the kill and taking it for yourself. Yeah, there was a there was a fabulous BBC documentary uh, several years back titled Human Planet that was narrated by John Hurt. And uh, it, was, it had to do with various um, human practices of often hunting or, or scavenging that, uh, that have been practiced to some degree into the modern age. And one of them involved stealing uh, part of the kill from a lion. Yeah. Uh, which uh, would be an example of power scavenging, something where you want to get in, the, like the, the the lion has done the, I guess, the hard part yeah. and has brought down prey. But now you're going to do an also hard thing. You want to, to get in there, drive the, the predator away long enough to get yourself a little bit of the meat as well. Right. Um, so for this hypothesis, the authors cite a work by Bingham and Souza from 2009, which makes the case that during the time of transition from Australopithecines to the emergence of the Homo genus, to which we belong, uh, climate conditions in Africa may have given rise to these little, like, isolated savanna environments containing hominins, but these environments also, quote, lacked dangerous predators and power scavengers like lions and hyenas, but contained smaller and less dangerous predators such as leopards and cheetahs. Mm. So if that's correct, it's it's maybe easy to imagine how with leopards and cheetahs, you could more uh, more plausibly chase them away or early hominins could have chased them away from a kill by throwing things at them, even without very specialized weapons, maybe just by like throwing rocks or, or unmodified sticks. And this could be thought of as a kind of high risk, high reward strategy like with power scavenging, you can get a big meat payday with relatively little energy investment since you don't have to, like, chase the prey animal down yourself. But mm. it's dangerous. You do have to confront one or more predators for the kill. And this type of strategy might not be worth the risk if you have to fight a leopard with your hands or with handheld weapons. But if you can just throw rocks at it from a distance until it runs away, that could be a really good deal. Yeah. And, and again, not necessarily drive it off completely, but just create an opening uh, during which you can carry out some power scavenging and then get out of there. Yeah. Now, another question to look at is what is the earliest we have like totally clear physical evidence to establish the use of thrown projectiles by humans. Um, the authors write, quote, unambiguous archaeological evidence of the use of modified throwing weapons manufactured by members of the genus Homo are the stone spear points manufactured approximately 300,000 years ago in Africa. Hunting spears with their center of gravity one third of the way from the tip, suggesting that they were thrown, were found in Germany and date from 300,000 to 400,000 years ago. These two examples are evidence that uh, manufactured weapons were thrown by uh, members of the Homo genus at least 300,000 years ago. But while it's harder to be certain about what happened before that, the authors infer that human ancestors were probably throwing sticks and rocks going back a couple million years. So there was probably use of throwing of uh, less modified or unmodified objects from the environment before we have evidence of these modified throwing weapons from like 300 to 400,000 years ago. And one idea I came across in trying to locate the origins of habitual forceful throwing uh, is based on studies of anatomy. And this brings us back to that researcher uh, I talked about a minute ago, the anthropologist Neil Thomas Roach, who, uh, along with some colleagues, studied the bodies and behavior of practiced human throwers like baseball pitchers. And uh, and let's see, the citation here is uh, Roach uh, Vincadesan. Uh, Rainbow and Lieberman from 2013, it published in the journal Nature, and the uh, paper title is Elastic Energy Storage in the Shoulder and the Evolution of High-Speed Throwing in Homo. And basically, uh, these authors 
contend that the anatomical difference that makes humans so good at throwing is our ability to store elastic energy in our shoulders. So it's not just like the strength of the muscles, but the fact that the human body is designed to sort of cock back the arm before a forceful throw. And a human essentially creates a biomechanical slingshot by stretching the tendons and the ligaments surrounding the scapula or the shoulder blade. And this tension could be thought of as analogous to the tension in a bowstring. It allows very rapid extension of the arm after the windup. Now, how come we can do this and our nearest relatives like chimpanzees cannot? The researchers here argued that there are basically three important anatomical changes that are found uh, altogether around two million years ago uh, in the uh, species Homo erectus. So these three changes are the expansion of the waist, and this sort of lets the torso rotate above the hips, which generates more rotational force. So when you're like cocking your arm back to throw overhand, you typically you twist your torso and that change yeah. in uh, in Homo erectus allowed them to twist their torso like that. The second is a lower positioning of the shoulders on the torso, and this changes the orientation of the muscles around the shoulder, again, helping us to store more energy in the windup of an overhand throw. Again, this is found in Homo erectus. And then the twisting of the humerus bone, which is the, the upper arm bone. And that twisting is yet another way to stretch the bowstring, storing up even more energy in the windup. Uh, and you can see these differences. Uh, there, there's a diagram they include. You, you might be able to look up for yourself if you see a comparison of uh, like a muscle diagram or the scapula of a chimpanzee and a human. And you can see some of these differences, particularly the lower position of the shoulder on the human body. You know, you look at uh, the upper musculature of a chimpanzee and you're like, well, I really would not want to be clubbed by this animal. And mm -hmm. I imagine that animal can really like climb a tree really well. Uh, but there's there's some kind of different twisting of the shoulder and the, the pectoral muscle in the human body that apparently allows us to, to perform this cocking back or wind up behavior before an overhand throw so much better than a chimp can. This also means, according to this illustration, the chimpanzee nipple is also just a little bit higher. <laughs> it's true. Proportionally, <laughs> comparatively. <laughs> Um, so uh, Roach and colleagues argue that these anatomical changes that favor throwing coincide with archaeological evidence showing increased hunting activity in these hominins. So like more processed animal bones at occupied sites, stone tool work, and so forth. Uh, so that would make a link between the, this, these anatomical changes that favor the ability to throw and what human ancestors were eating. The Homo erectus was apparently dining on more meat. Mm. Now, coming back to that paper by Lombardo and Diener from uh, 2018, they examine a number of other different things, like uh, talking about the prevalence and effectiveness of overhand throwing in, in warfare and hunting. And they also look at things like sex differences in throwing behavior, uh, for example, in chimpanzees. Uh, there's some evidence that male chimpanzees tend to throw more uh, and relative levels of lethality and targeted throwing behaviors and so forth. But to come to the conclusion regarding that transition, like how did the leap happen from you know, sort of occasional non-specialized throwing like we see in chimpanzees today to the habitual targeted forceful overhand throwing that humans can do. Uh, the conclusion, they argue, is that uh, this adaptation grew out of, quote, a way for throwers to manipulate the behavior of targeted individuals during intraspecific agonistic interactions and then later transitioned into use during power scavenging and hunting by hominins, perhaps in the Australopithecines. So why do they think it started with uh, manipulating the behavior of, uh, of other hominins within the same species and agonistic interactions? Well, I think we can get some clues by looking at our closest primate relatives again. This, this in no way clinches the argument. We don't know for sure, but it's, it's an interesting line of evidence. So they say if you look at our relatives like chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, and so forth, these animals have all been observed throwing. But when and how do they throw? Well, do they throw to hunt? The answer there seems like either no or almost never. There are almost no claimed observations that any of these animals use projectiles for hunting, with basically one possible exception. And that's a report by Jane Goodall, actually, in 1986, uh, where to read from the paper here, quote, 
Goodall reported three observations of throwing by hunting chimpanzees. In two instances, stones thrown by an adult male may have been intended to cause the prey, adult bush pigs, to run rather than to harm them. In another instance, six male chimpanzees hunting baboons threw stones at male baboons that were attacking the hunters. None of these accounts closely resembles the highly skilled aimed throwing used by human hunters. So even if these instances count, they appear to be somewhat ambiguous and relatively unique. There are basically no other reports of apes throwing to hunt. Uh, and instead, apes and monkeys seem to use throwing as part of communication behavior during encounters with other members of the same species or sometimes with other animals such as humans. Most often, it's used for agonistic interactions, a kind of threat display that you might throw rocks or sticks at another member of the same ape species or another animal to sort of drive them away or intimidate them. So if a chimpanzee is trying to display dominance or intimidate another one or trying to get an interloper away from the group, throwing rocks and sticks is a common behavior there. But it's also not just aggressive interactions. Those are the most common. There are also, in fewer cases, more benign examples, like uh, particularly in bonobos and some monkeys, where throwing can be a bid to initiate play or some other type of non-threatening communication. Yeah, pebbles on the windmill again here. So for the most part, it seems chimps don't really hunt or power scavenge by throwing. They throw most often as a threatening display toward other chimps uh, or to communicate in some way. But you can see how this behavior could bridge over into power scavenging if you're generally throwing to threaten. So, you know, it starts off with agonistic interactions and then maybe sometimes you throw to threaten a predator that is there with with a kill and, and instead you drive the predator away and you take the meat. This creates an association between throwing to threaten and a meat reward that could increasingly lead to throwing to hunt directly, especially if you were able to create modified projectiles such as spears. So it makes me wonder, like, if those specific chimpanzees observed by Jane Goodall, if they were in fact using rocks to hunt or aid in hunting in some way, you, you kind of have to wonder if maybe they're on the bleeding edge of chimp technology in some way. Like uh, the one, those are the ones who, if left alone for a few hundred thousand years, might evolve to select anatomical traits that favor throwing and, you know, modify objects from their environment to make their throwing more effective. Yeah, yeah, this is fascinating. This sort of, we can see the, the, the links here between like this sort of growing understanding to some degree that being able to throw an object at another creature is a way to alter its behavior or disrupt its behavior at a distance. Yeah. And then that that potential extra step in realizing that this also can harm the animal. And then there are ways to enhance the materials so as to increase harm. Uh, yeah, it's fascinating. So what do I think about their hypothesis here? Uh, I wouldn't say I'm 100% convinced, but it seems very plausible that they make a pretty good case. All right. So hopefully this episode will help us, you know, spook you, will help um, mess you up the next time you need to try and throw something with intention and direction. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe your next uh, softball game. Uh, maybe the next time you uh, you go to beer somebody uh, at an outdoor um, party, there'll just be that moment of doubt where you, you run through the evolutionary history of getting to this point and then you miss your target. Yep. Overthink it and then slice. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we'd uh, we'd love to hear from anyone out there if you have any uh, thoughts and feedback related to this episode or other episodes in this uh, this series about humans throwing things, animals throwing things. Um, right in. We'd love to hear from you. And of course, we could uh, we could potentially uh, keep going with this topic. So uh, we're gonna we're gonna discuss after we wrap this episode and see if we're going to part four now or if we're gonna come back in the future. I don't know. We'll have to tune in Thursday to see what happens. In the meantime, we'll remind you that Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a science podcast that publishes core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we do listener mail. On Wednesdays, we do a short form artifact or monster fact episode. And on Fridays, we set aside most serious concerns to discuss a weird movie on Weird House Cinema. Huge thanks to our audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. 
Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.